0: This is Javitsa Djurjevic, host of Millennial Manhood. Welcome to the first official episode. I know we recorded an introductory episode a couple days ago, and that was just to give you guys a taste of what we're going to be talking about on this podcast. But today is the first official episode, and I am incredibly excited to have my best friend on, James Gilreath. He is just one of the most interesting people and one of the most disciplined human beings I know, bar none. And him and I had a fantastic discussion. We obviously, as I said last time, we're working through some of the technical kinks, but we're getting better and we're uh, figuring out how to make things as smooth as possible from a transition standpoint and such. But the conversation was fantastic. We talked about several different things, particularly what it's like to be a professional athlete in a discipline and the anxiety around competing for a living. We talked about... Some of the deeper questions he had to ask himself when he was going through some of the adversity in his life, such as the passing of a parent and really what it means to be a man in today's society and what that looks like for the young man in particular, with all the distractions and all the noise out there and how we can keep our eye on the prize. So the conversation was incredibly entertaining. I love talking to him. At first, it was a it was a little more stiff because obviously we've got microphones in front of us instead of us just talking to each other. But as the conversation progressed, it became just a more natural uh, flow of, of ideas and, and topics and such. So I'm really excited. I think you guys will be really happy with the content in the episode. I've got several pages worth of notes at this point from just writing down the things that he was saying. So without further ado, here's James Gilreath. Hey, everybody. I'm here with James Gilreath, as I mentioned in the introduction. Uh, I've known James for a really, really long time. He's uh, almost superhuman in a lot of ways. He is a professional athlete, one of the fastest people in America and probably the world. He's also a CPA, a business owner, and just an all-around good guy. James, welcome, welcome to Millennial Manhood. Thanks for having me, man. James, uh, do a little bit of an introduction for the people who are listening, who are not aware of who you are. You know what um, what the conversation involved when I initially reached out to you about being on the podcast, and what are some of the topics that you're really excited to discuss today?
1: Of course. Uh, so, Yavasa, like he said, we've known each other for what twelve years now. Going Something on twelve like that. years. Long yeah. time. So we've been great friends, we met running cross country in Memphis, Tennessee at Bartlett High School. And so that's a lot of what I identify with running, cross country. Um, so I run track and field professionally. Um, and in the daytime, I'm a CPA, I went to Baylor University. That's how I got down to Texas. And now, um, I, starting January 1 of this year, I'm a part-time CPA and a full-time track and field athlete. And in a little bit of extra free time, I have my own business, and I'm doing personal and small business taxes there. Um, so when uh, Yavisarisa to me to do it about doing this podcast, it really struck a chord with me because of all the things I've gone through as a young man and the areas where I wish I had more help, and the areas I see a lot of young men really, really struggling with in today's day and age. So, um, especially with discipline, leadership, just being, being a responsible human being. And, and it's funny when you
0: say professional athlete, because I, I mentioned that to a lot of my friends who either hadn't yet met you or, um, you know, haven't met you at all yet. And I mentioned that you run track professionally and people are oftentimes caught off guard because when they think track, they just think, oh, the Olympics every four years. But, you know, there's something you've got to do in between those four years to make it to the Olympics. And so get, for all the people listening who just aren't aware that there's literally thousands of meets in between those four, four years and people run professionally and are signed to teams and make a living off of this, give a little bit of a background of what it actually means to be a professional athlete in that track and field sense, because most people do think of the NFL, NBA,
1: uh, things like that. So give us, give us a little breakdown. I have to answer this question a whole lot uh, because for some reason, I think uh, pre about 1980 or so, I think there was, don't quote me on this, might have to do some Google research, but I think there was a time where if you wanted to compete in the, in the Olympics, you had to be an amateur athlete. So you could not have professional status. So if you declare professional status, then you were exempt from, you could not participate in the Olympics. So once that changed, a whole lot of the Olympic sport atmosphere changed. And so now what I do is, uh, like you said, there are thousands of meets, Uh, throughout track season throughout every year and so first year most people are associated with a big shoe company or a track club and so for me I'm associated with a track club and we used to also be associated with a big shoe company we used to also we'd be uh, sponsored by Adidas but now we're pretty much self-sponsored we have individual sponsors like a sports medicine group, sports psychology group, chiropractic services. Uh, We have some subsidized funding from different local shoe stores. But for the most part, we're self-funded. And um, so I train seven days a week. Uh, The club supports me. They cover my travel. And in return, I offer coaching services to the club for our our youth group that's underneath our club's umbrella. And... um, So that's, those are the basics. And so the track meets that are in between are largely hosted by colleges. So colleges host track meets. They're mostly, um, there for college athletes, but they allow unattached or post-collegial or professional runners into the meets at times. And then they have, there are also meets that are specifically for professionals. Like, for instance, next, next Saturday, Adidas is hosting a track meet for professionals. I'll be running in that against a world-class field. So I'm really excited about that. But the goal in these years, so obviously the Olympics is not this year. At least the Summer Olympics is not this year. So the goal in this year is to make it to the USA Track and Field National Meet. And every other year, the world championships, the USA National Championship qualifies you for the world championships. But this year, it happens to be one of those off years where the USA Outdoor Championships qualifies you for nothing. It's just a USA National Championship, and you can say you're a USA National Champion when you win. Um, but in just an Olympic year, rights. just bragging rights. And so <laughs> <laughs> it's another year to enhance your craft, get better, fine-tune your skills, work on your weaknesses, compete, get uh, just improve your time. But the big thing that we do this for is to make an Olympic team. And so... For example, 2020 is coming up. That's the next Summer Olympics. So you have an Olympic trials in the year of the Olympics, pretty much a month, month and a half before the Games. So in June, July of 2020, they'll have the Olympic, game, Olympic trials in the U.S. for track and field. And so for my event, the 800 meters, they accept about 32 athletes. So in order to qualify for that, you have to run a qualifying time which for uh, for 2016 in those trials the qualifying time was 1 minute and 46 seconds. So if you run that time, you're automatically qualified. And if you're not automatically qualified, they fill the field out to about 32 athletes. So they take 32 athletes and the opening window to qualify starts May 1st, 2019. So from you can qualify from May 1st, 2019 all the way up to mid-June of 2020. So then, from there, you make it. You're one of the top 32 athletes. Then they have a preliminary round, and then it cuts down to half for the semifinal round, half the field. Then the final uh, final round will be the top quarter of those 32 athletes, and they're competing for a top three spot to make the Olympic team.
0: So, team so USA you pretty doesn't... much have. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. So, I was just going to USA... say. You say you pretty much i was saying team usa doesn't even know who their athletes are going to be until a couple weeks before the olympics right
1: which is different than other sports because i think there in other sports there's a lot more political and subjective picking going on because a lot of people say do you know if you're going to olympics how do you know how what's that's going what's going on and i'm like well you really don't know until a month before the games yeah it's like sudden death competition and so if you're The best going into the Olympic trials. You've been the best for four years going to the trials. It doesn't matter. You're on the same playing field as all 32 other participants. And on that day, you had to show up. You had to be at your very best. No excuses. Boom. Yeah, so they don't do like an aggregate score
0: of, hey, here are your averages over the last four years. It's you either made it that day or not. Yeah, you either made it that day or not. So, What kind of stress and pressure does that put on a 28-year-old? when you're running in that type of a competition?
1: It puts a lot of stress on you. I mean, I competed in the 2016 trials and it was amazing to be there. And that kind of the amazement of the moment kind of took a lot of the pressure off. I'm like, man, I'm here with the best trained athletes in the US and the world. And everyone's here with a common goal uh, and everyone has an equal opportunity to take advantage of that common goal. Um, so I was looking at it more from that perspective and just enjoying the moment. But I could easily see how on any given day that could switch from the amazement to just straight raw pressure, thinking about all the grunge work that you've had to do for four years or eight years or 12 years, however long, long it took you to reach that moment and thinking about how anything, any slight imperfection of the day can ruin that moment and you have to just be able to wade through the noise of that moment and execute that's what my coach says all the time it doesn't matter how you feel you got to get the job done I think that's key the you'll I think the quote that I've
0: heard recently is you'll act your way into feeling rather than feel your way into acting
1: Hmm, I like that I like that
0: Well, and and think about it from this standpoint. So this just actually got me thinking through what you're describing from an anxiety standpoint. You know, the name of this podcast is Millennial Manhood and we're particularly trying to focus on helping young men um, just improve themselves. But one of the things that as a generation we're struggling with is we're one of the most medicated groups of people in history, ever since they've been keeping track. And a lot of uh, that medication comes down to anxiety medication And I'm thinking through, you know, I know how hard you train. So just a little anecdotal piece of information. Uh, James was my best man in my wedding, so he planned my bachelor party. So the first night of our bachelor party, we, you know, we do bachelor party things. We're drinking, we're having a good time. We're for the love of God, we started the night with a, a brewery <laughs> tour, so we we we'd been drinking for a while. We finished the night at Waffle House, just most the uh, bachelor party imaginable way to do it, and it was continuing the next day. But we got back to our place, the Airbnb where we were staying, at probably four a.m., maybe three thirty, and I think at six thirty, James got up and ran ten miles, or some ridiculous number, and I remember just thinking about that when I woke up and I thought this guy is a is a machine this is ridiculous i I mean i knew how hard you worked but just seeing it within that context and then articulating that within this is how hard you're working and then if you mess up that one day if somebody spikes you if you get in the wrong lane if if the if the pacing is off in the race whatever it may be it can all fall apart how do you manage that anxiety that because obviously as a as a society we're not doing a good job of managing anxiety
1: yeah, we're really not. I, I love that quote. I've still been kind of meditating on that quote as you've been talking. Uh, but it's, it's, a, it's as simple as that. You have to think about in the moment. For, for one, my coach has been talking about this a lot lately. You have to appreciate the journey for what it is. Because if you're thinking too much about what could go wrong, it probably will. So you just appreciate the journey and realize it. At the end of the day, if the worst thing happens, I can live with that. And I can. Um, if I'm not to make the team, I can live with that. But I know that I'll be a better man for going through the struggle, going through the day to day, just going through the 100% commitment, knowing that I have to be 100% to even have a shot at making it. I kind of, I don't know if I kind of got off track there.
0: No, you're fine. Well, and, and part of what sucks about being an athlete in the United States when it comes to the Olympics is that, and correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that if you ran for another country that had just as many spots available in the Olympics for whatever reason because of how they qualified in X, Y, Z, you could actually run a slower time than someone in the United States and make the Olympics.
1: Oh, yeah, which is kind of wild. I have friends that run for other countries that um, – they have very similar times to to me, and they they ran the Olympics. They ran the previous Olympics. The Olympics, uh, the Olympic committees, I guess, make certain allowances for countries that don't have a certain amount of, um, I guess, representation on the track or in any sport, and so they kind of bend the qualifying standards for those countries. So there are, I know, several people that have switched their citizenship. Just in the name of being able to run the Olympics, maybe at one point in time they tried for the United States and they realized how difficult it was, and they said, "Well, oh well, my grandfather or grandmother is from such and such country. Uh, let me see how simple the citizenship requirements are to switch over." And in some cases, there's some corrupt countries out there to where you it doesn't even have to be that strange. I could just be that I could be. A citizen of that country tomorrow if I wanted to be.
0: Yeah, they'll but, get it done in a week.
1: They'll get it done. But to me, that kind of ruins the, the lure of everything. That kind of ruins, that's the easy way out. I mean, if it, if it were easy, everybody could do it. So you don't really want to take that route. If you don't have to, not to say if you actually have citizenship ties to that country, I'm not trying to badmouth anybody because man, if I actually had citizenship rights somewhere else, it might be a different story you, you, you might have ties to that country and really want to represent for that country so i'm not trying to down talk anybody with that well and i think
0: part of the issue there is that if you are just essentially quote-unquote buying a citizenship um in a week the reason a lot of these countries have an easier process or there's less athletes reaching their full potential is because in the united states we've got a lot of leisure time we just do and with that leisure time, we can gear our energy towards uh, athletics and develop our athletes. Whereas in some random country where maybe you have to start working at the age of eight, you might be Michael Jordan, but you never got the opportunity to pick up a basketball.
1: It's <laughs> very true. A lot of that leisure time and also the resources available. Uh, for instance, a lot of people that... Run for these smaller countries or even some of the larger countries, they still train in the U.S. and use the U.S.'s resources or they come in and again get in the university system here in the U.S. So uh, the U.S. just has a lot of resources available for, for this type of deal. And largely, probably going back to your point about the leisure time, people have used that leisure time to develop some of the best resources available for athletics. Yeah, think about it. You and I are
0: recording a podcast right now instead of working in the field, you know, planting corn. That's a that's a fundamentally different lifestyle than a lot of the world, and and I don't think a lot of people realize that. This is work. <laughs> yeah, basically. Uh, well, it's not. I'm definitely I'm losing money on this podcast. There's no there's no there's no money being earned here. So, well, let me ask you this. So. One of the reasons you and I bonded so much when we first met is that we both um, both had very strong father figures in our lives from a very early age, and, and that was one of the, the the bonding moments, particularly in a – it felt like – I don't know if it's changed now, but particularly when you and I were in high school and middle school, it felt like everybody's parents were divorced. A lot of people didn't even talk to their parents. Maybe it was just a community we grew up in, whatever it may be. and And that really – Connected us, but just over the last you know 20 years, um, outside the obvious of, of a father, who have been the most impactful men in your life that have helped you really um, take that energy, that fire that you have in you, and direct it. Basically, who, who's helped you create a fireplace for your fire so you don't you know end up burning
1: down a forest? Mm. Oh, that's that's big time. And I agree wholeheartedly. I think our connection is solely. Well, largely on our strong fathers. And I think that's definitely something missing today. People are just afraid to be old school and instill that hard work and that hardcoreness in their children. So going back to your question, um, the men that have done that have been my coaches, especially my current coach. He's just not afraid to give you the truth and put that mirror directly in front of your face and tell you, where you need improvement. And I think that's something that is at completely absent from today's world. It's just like if someone needs to tell someone something, they just let that person go on and uh, continue in their their downfall without showing them where they can improve, showing them where, where they're making mistakes. And so uh, my coach right now, Coach Green, is, is a great person for that, and I've learned so much from him. Uh, and and after observing my coaches I've been able to to see that same character trait in some of my bosses in, in my professional career as a, an accountant as well and so now I, now I'm really into analyzing leaders and seeing seeing that trait in different people and seeing how that that um kind of comes out in in their leadership ability and how their pupils fall fall in, the, in that um you know in that uh underneath that leadership umbrella do you feel like people are running from the responsibility of leadership oh most definitely most definitely and i was thinking about this that this morning man a leader is probably One of the most difficult things to do, especially if if you don't have the personality that goes in with being a leader, because you get you you can't be afraid to not have people to have people not like you when you're a leader. So, I think largely in today's world, people are so agreeable. People want everybody to like everybody. They they feel like they had to be politically correct. So a lot of people run from that leadership role because they fear what comes with that. They fear being alone. They fear. Not being able to mesh into society because, oh, if I'm the leader, I have to do things and say things that people don't like. And then what will that, that'll leave me lonely. I'll be over here by myself, ostracized from the world, which is really not that bad. You just can't, gotta be, you can't be afraid to stand up and say what you believe and say what you believe to be correct and what's going to actually, you really just have to love the people you're with and love the people that you're telling the truth to.
0: Well, and that's really difficult in this environment that we're in right now, because culturally speaking, everybody believes they have a right to not be offended. And then that leads to conversation being eliminated. You can't have a public discourse if you have to, if everybody in the discourse is saying, well, I have a right to not be offended. Well, I hate to break it to everyone, but... At some point you may have to offend somebody just to get an idea out. It doesn't even have to be your opinion, but when you're working through an idea, you may have to go through some offensive thought processes to get to an end result.
1: Mm. Yeah, the the way past, let me see, I'm probably gonna ruin this quote, Um, but I I had a conversation with a guy at Starbucks one time. My friend and I were talking to him about Christianity and he was a Christian, but we had some fundamental differences in there. I normally don't like to talk about religion with people, but uh, mm-hmm. I've been doing that a lot more lately. And he he loved the conversation we were having. He was an older guy. He was getting close to 90, actually. Kind of crazy. Wow. And he mentioned something about how the only way you can make progress is fundamentally at a disagreement. Understanding where you disagree. And if everyone agrees on everything, you're never going to make any progress because people are agreeing to things that they don't really agree with in conversation. So by having a conversation and talking through disagreements, you actually get somewhere. You make progress. You understand someone, another viewpoint from your, a different from your own. And you're able to kind of bridge the best of all worlds that way.
0: Yeah, it's. I was thinking about this the other day. Again, we can go back to the religion conversation, but I've never really understood fundamentalists in any form, in any sense of religion, and you know the hardcore atheists, where they both speak of each other as I have no idea, I don't understand how you could ever believe that. It's like uh, that means you really haven't reconciled your own belief system, whatever it may be, if you can't understand how somebody else can believe something different. Because in order for you to reconcile your belief system, you have to go to some dark places of disagreement with yourself. And -hmm. you have to work through the other end of the spectrum and reconcile and and come to some conclusions on your own. So whenever I hear somebody say that, I immediately think, "Mm, I don't really know, you're probably standing in a canoe. (laughs) <laughs> and you're about to tip over. So that's why you're saying such an extreme statement because you're scared of your own belief system and you don't really know how to defend it. At least that's my opinion. And I've I've debated all kinds of people just for fun. Sometimes I'll even pick the devil's advocate and pick a side that I don't even agree with just to work it through in my own head. And you're not really allowed to do that in, in the public discourse today because every word you say is so scrutinized and so overanalyzed and, and everybody can chop you up into snippets and say, Hey, you know, XYZ said, said this, well, did he really say that? Did you see the whole interview? Did you see, did you hear the entire conversation? And then with the whole, um, social media aspect and all we see is everybody's highlight reel, you know, people are living for the like and the, and the, you know, comment. And a couple of years ago was do it for the vine. Well, how about you do it do it for yourself, do it for some self-development. How about that? Have you um I was going to ask you about this. When it comes to social media, have you fallen into that trap, particularly in the running world, of seeing people post results, seeing people post, you know, their events at the Olympics or whatever it may be and and you falling into that what was
1: me mindset? I think at, at some point at some level we all fall into it, subconsciously or consciously. Uh, that's why I think social media, it can, it can be so dangerous. It can be very beneficial for just staying abreast of things. And, and sometimes your, your subconscious will take those things as positive cues. But a lot of times, like you said, every, you're just seeing the highlight reel of everyone. And so it makes these things look so easy. And sometimes, like in, in the instance you're describing, if I see someone with an Olympic medal, a world championship medal, it makes it look so easy and they're receiving all the glory. And then you create these wild thoughts that maybe they didn't deserve it or why am I not in that position? And, and in your subconscious, it just kind of, you get all this filth in your subconscious that doesn't necessarily need to be there. That's where the danger of social media is. And, um, you forget all the work that goes into it and forget, oh, hey, I can go put that work in it right now, instead of just looking at a picture and trying to create the work out of social media moments. <laughs> and uh, anybody can create a picture. That's the danger. Anybody Anybody can write a quote. You got these, a lot of these women that, that are on there and they're just trying to flaunt their bodies, but yet they have a, a Bible verse, or inspirational quote there. You're like, hey, 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 uh, I don't think that quote has anything to do with your post. So... There's a myriad of different things and different routes that people are going on there on social media. And it's kind of corrupting people's minds as we consume it when we look at it because it's not the truth.
0: Yeah. Or you you see the dope boy with his, um, you know, with his couple grand and his new Jordans and, and a gun being shown in his Instagram picture, and he says, only God can judge me. It's like, well, no, I can judge you too. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> that's, that's, the point of, that's the point of society. We, we've evolved to live in uh, groups of 120 to 150 people and judge each other. That's why we've got things like gossip. And <laughs> it's, it's so ridiculous. It's like, if uh, 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 you're no man but God, well, okay. I don't, I don't know what you're trying to articulate here. Uh, but yeah, you're right, it's, it's a false life that we've created, and it's so hard to navigate those waters. And I think because we're so used to everybody's highlight reel, and we're so used to um, that approach to life, when we face real adversity, we feel like we're the only ones actually facing adversity you know i know you've gone through a lot of different things in your life i mean talk to me a little bit about how you've handled adversity and the challenges that have come to you in 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 a relatively short life up to this point and how you've overcome them and what's what are the lessons you've learned out of all of that
1: Mm. that's a that's a loaded question there Um, well it's an interview that's the point (laughs) (laughs) let's see if we can unload that well so yeah um Adversity. Um, I guess my first real bout with adversity is, uh, dealing with the death of my father and had, had several things since then, but that was probably the most pivotal moment in my life because it just makes you question everything on the existential. Did I say that right? <laughs> probably not. Existential. Uh, I'm not, it's too early in the morning for that, uh, <laughs> level. So, um, I questioned so much then. And like you were talking about earlier, about belief and just going to dark places like during that time period i was just looking for an escape because you realize there's nothing you can do when at a certain point when your loved one is 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 dying and so i had to reach within myself how how can i keep going feeling like this what do i need to lean on what is uh what are my basic beliefs What can I pull from to get past this moment? So you have all these thoughts swirling in your mind and um, just really cry out to God in that moment because you know that there is a a being greater than you that has allowed this moment to happen. So that has been my, God has been my rock in, in times of adversity. And just pulling strength from that, pulling strength from other inspirational people who have had worse adversity than I have. And realizing that life is made of adversity, man was created to, to work in this world and work is not easy. So you had to figure a way to get it done and be able to have a positive attitude through it all and understand, OK, I'm created to go through adversity. Adversity is in my DNA. It is what we were made to create overcome it's not supposed to be easy and once you kind of grasp that then you realize okay every single experience is uh, one more for shaping you and just taking one at a time trying to compartmentalize it to a degree what is going on handling it the best you can Uh, to give a running analogy we do interval training and my coach might say all right, we have to do 10 times 1,000 meters today. You're like, man, 10 times 1,000 meters? That workout takes over an hour long to do. So over an hour of intense running. We're running um, well, well under five-minute pace per mile with short rest and 10 of them. Like, man, I, it's trying to trying to digest all of that at once is impossible. Cause you're like, man, I, I can't imagine the pain I'm going to be in. And, no, and then anticipating the pain... It, it keeps you from acting like you were saying, um, feel your way, act your way into feeling instead of feeling your way into acting. So that expectation causes you to want to act your way into feeling. But instead to say, man, forget that. I'm going to focus on this one that's right in front of me. I'm going to focus on this moment that's right in front of me and focus on that moment and give it everything I have, whether that's dealing with the loss of a loved one and figuring out the best way to get through that. Maybe whether that be prayer, talking to people you respect And just giving it your all or if that's as simple as me actually doing a track workout and I have 10 times 1,000 meters and I have the first one. I have to get through the first one on the pace that my coach prescribed for me. So I'm going to give all my attention to that. Now, once I finish that one, I'm going to go to the next one. And that's what life is like. It's you move from one piece of adversity to the next. If that's your day, like today, I have a lot of things on my list and I have to go through some adversity to get there, whether that's small small. Or whether it's big, whether I have a presentation to the IRS or whether I just have to make sure I don't sleep all day, you know. So, <laughs> you know, you just you have all these things that you have to go encounter. And I I think I heard you give that analogy about your what your dad said about how life is like a hallway. And as you go, it gets narrower and narrower. But, oh, hey, that hallway is full of glass shards on the sides. And as you go, you're going to encounter times when you get scraped up and those scrapes shape you for the future and you are tougher you're more numb to those things you still feel them but you're more seasoned and more able to deal with things that come and as you keep going you have more and those more of those things coming at you more and more but you're more up for the task as you go if you allow yourself to be or you're going to shrink more and more from it and turn into a coward so you have those two options you either bow up allow those experiences to season you or you shrink more and more until you're living you're not really living a life
0: yeah and the life is suffering that's what life is 90 percent of life is suffering every single day you wake up and you particularly as a man whether you like it or not it's it's written into you that you want to go out there and you want to go hunt. You want to go hustle. You want to go make money. You want to go provide. That's where you get your value from. And whether that's being a musician or being the CEO of a company, you're still going out there and you're making something happen, or at least you you want to. And like you said, sleeping all day or being lazy, it's so counter. I've never slept all day and then felt good at the end of it Mm -hmm. ever. Not Mm -hmm. once, but I've, woken up at 3 a.m. and gone to sleep at 9 and worked like a madman. And when I go to sleep that day, I'm like, yeah, I conquered the world today. And when you, when you fundamentally come to terms with the fact that life is suffering and that really, let's be real, in, unless you suffer, how, how can you even find anything out about yourself? If everything is always perfect, what is there to learn?
1: Yeah, you find yourself on the other side of suffering.
0: Now, I would also say that at 19, when your father passed away, I think that was a hell of a lot for a 19-year-old to swallow and to understand and to reconcile. So I do think there's, you know, it would, it would probably, probably have been significantly easier to have your dad pass away when you were 40, right? Oh, yeah, most definitely.
1: Yeah, that was definitely, uh, I, hadn't even, I hadn't figured out much at all about the world at that time. I mean, at 19, you think you've experienced a lot of things, but I hadn't experienced really anything. So, like you said, it was very difficult to reconcile that moment. Um, but yeah, going back to your point about a man, like suffering is, is in our, it's, it's what, it's in us, what we're supposed to suffer. And I think at some point, um, I realized how I had been so conditioned by the culture. And it's almost like I had allowed the culture to take that competitive, challenging spirit out of me. And once i realized that i was like i like competition i like a challenge why have i allowed my mind to be conditioned to to not want this i want that i want that challenge so from that point you take that as as a as a purpose for every day like i want this challenge this is what i want because after, once you get on the other side of that challenge like you said you you go to bed at 3 a.m. after a long day of work. You feel like you did. You satisfied your purpose for that day. You, you can go to bed with a, a rest, a peace, knowing I did what I'm supposed to do today. And while I may not have figured out so, and solved the world's problems, I did something today that my body and my spirit and my soul knows I'm I'm living out my purpose in in what, whatever way that may be. Well, and
0: you know, when you, I'll go back to the example of sleeping all day or not doing what you're doing, you just feel like a coward. You know, and I think a lot of it really is biological for us. I mean, think about how our ancestors lived. You know, you and I would have woken up this morning when the sun came up, not a second later because you couldn't because it was too bright. We went to sleep when the sun went down. And you know, my name would have been Ook Ook and yours would have been Nook Nook or something. <laughs> and we would have said, all right, let's go kill a saber tooth tiger. So us and six or seven of our buddies would have gone out there and we would, have, we would have tracked down a wild beast. And I have to be able to trust you to do your job. That's why character is so important because inherently it comes down to our ancestors needing to be able to trust each other. If you're going to distract a tiger, while I'm going to throw a spear and you don't do a good job of distracting that tiger, the tiger's going to come at me with the spear and kill me. And if I don't throw the spear the right way and you're distracting the tiger, guess what? The tiger's going to come kill you. So I have to be able to trust you. I have to be able to fundamentally believe that you said you're going to do something and you're going to do it. And I really believe that deep down in our consciousness, when we do not fulfill that purpose of what we said we're going to do, It's like our ancestors are coming down on us and being like, dude, you just let him die because the tiger mauled him to death. Mm.
1: Yeah, the stakes are a lot higher than we we make them because we don't see any of the consequences like that. That's that was life and death in our ancestors day. And um, and for some people, it still is today. Yeah.
0: I mean, go to some jungle in Brazil or, or wherever it may be. Those people literally wake up every day, and every day is a struggle to just stay alive. That's it. Nothing else. Not how many likes they get on a gram. <laughs> not if they can close a deal or not. It's the, the deal they're closing is they're trying to feed the village. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, a, it's an interesting approach. But one thing I, I haven't really expanded on here is, so when I say you're a professional athlete in track, Okay, people think, okay, track, you run, you condition really fast. That's the jokes. Like, you you condition better than other people. But I don't think people understand how fast people like you actually are. So let's do what was your PR in high school in the 800?
1: High school, I ran 149. Okay, so you
0: you ran around the track really fast twice in a minute and 49 seconds in high school? Yes. Okay, so what's uh, your PR right now? A minute 46. Okay, a minute forty six. So three seconds shaved off since high school.
1: Three seconds. Ish. Yes, okay. What's yes.
0: the what's the world record in the eight hundred? The world record is one forty point nine. Okay. So you're six seconds slower right now than the fastest human that has ever been recorded running around the track twice. Five point seven to be exact. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I can appreciate that. That's the competitive spirit coming out. What does it feel like walking around? So you live in Houston, which is a massive city. You can literally go walk downtown Houston and look at everybody on the street and say, I'm faster than you with a a high level of certainty that
1: that statement is true. What does that feel like? It's a a liberating and proud type of feeling to know that, but also knowing that you have every bit of backup behind that. Knowing that you can support that, if anybody is like, "Hey, let's race! All right, let's go." <laughs> you track jersey in your glove box. <laughs> yeah, you got to be. You're prepared, I'm prepared at any moment, and I have the confidence that goes with it. Because anytime you're prepared, you should really have the confidence to go with it, with that situation. So, um, yes, yeah, it's, it's a very confidence exuding moment when you when you really think think and reflect on things like that. Well, and you've worked really hard to make sure that that's true
0: confidence and not arrogance. You are. So in the last Olympic trials, where did you end up? So they took the top three. Where did you end up placing?
1: I believe I was 21st.
0: Okay. So, and you haven't even hit, people don't know this, but you don't really hit your track
1: um, prime until your late 20s, right? Right. So about the time I'm, uh, a male reaches his, his physical and mental maturity, so like 27 through thirty two ish can be the okay. prime. Yeah.
0: So you hadn't even hit your prime yet and you were you were going up against grown thirty
1: year old men. Right. Right. Now now there are definitely some anomalies in there, some young twenty two year old guys and around that age that still pop on the scene. But they probably haven't reached their peak either. I mean of course people peak different at different ages, but the general peak, is, like we were saying around thirty years old. Yeah, there's always going to be the LeBron James of track somewhere. (laughs) There's always those guys.
0: (laughs) Who comes in at 18 looking like a 50-year-old man claiming AARP. It's ridiculous. Uh, (laughs) So so what, if you could take all the knowledge you've aggregated over the years in track, and, you know, you do have your CPA, you do also have your master's. I mean, you went to Baylor. You went to a prestigious private school. Uh, For both undergrad and graduate school. And then you went and worked at a big four accounting firm. And and now you're, then you went to another company and now you've got your own business. But if you took all that knowledge and just aggregated it and and you could go back to 18-year-old James or 18-year-old anybody and say, okay, here are the top three things you need to know about how to become a better man. What would those three things be? Oh, man.
1: Let's think on this. Number one, I would say, know what you want. Know what you want is number one. So basically have a purpose behind your life or behind a goal. Uh, Number two, prioritize those goals because obviously you'll have more than one one thing that you want in life. And number three, commitment. Be 100% committed. Um, kind of going through how I've come to that those conclusions for those three Um, I've always been organized chaos since I've been younger I will always um, kind of be all over the place as far as I'm, I'm a messy guy I have stuff all over the place but I'm a- always able to find what I need I'm always able to get done what I need to get done no matter what the fashion is And what I've been learning recently is that you need to have more order to what you want because so many things get thrown at you in life that you'll have trouble prioritizing or even figuring out what's important to you in those moments. So that's why I say, that's why I say know what you want. Because if you know what you want, then you're not going to, you're not going to sacrifice what you, what you want and what you need for something that's just a whimsical moment, something that you feel like it's important but it's really not in that moment. So you have to be firmly rooted in knowing what you want, knowing what you believe, your purpose. And two, kinda of, it's kinda of like piggybacking off that one, the priorities, knowing what order these things fall in line in your life. So a lot of people say God, family, um, job, or however they organize their priorities. These these things are really important. It's not just a a cliche or something you throw out there, you really need to have a good order of your priorities in your life and understand what is important to me. Because when you get so busy and inundated with life, things are thrown at you so fast, so fast-paced, and you have to say, okay, well, I'm not going to be able to do this over here because I have this family commitment. I'm not going to be able to do this over here because I have this commitment to God. I'm not going to be able to do this over here because I have this commitment to my job. And you have to be able to structure your whole day, your whole life in those terms. Because otherwise, you'll be just whimsical and you'll be blown in the wind with everything. And then third is just once you've had, once you have those things established, go all the way in. Leave no, no lifeboats. Go all the way in. Put, put your all into it. And that's the only way you're going to get the most out of your life is by putting your all into whatever is in front of you, whatever you believe in, whatever your purpose is, whatever your priorities are.
0: I think that's really good vi- wisdom for people, I think. Too often now, because we've got so many distractions in our life, we commit to something, but we do it at 65 or 70%. We're not really going 100% in. And that's that's an issue because then we become jacks of all trades and masters of none.
1: Mm.
0: You know, back in the day, 100 years ago, you would specialize in something. You would be the smith or the baker or whatever. Now, Uh, we've lost that purpose. We've lost that identity of, I am really good at this. And track has probably helped you a lot in that. And the fact that you are really freaking good at this one thing, and you can take a lot of pride in being really good and really committed to it while still having other character traits and other skills. But you know for a fact that you
1: are mastering one. Right you can only master one thing at a time like you said blacksmiths silversmiths whatever what have you and in the ancient world and, and like even in some cultures today they still are following that model um you really can only master one thing at a time and it, it took me a while to really figure that out uh i've had so many different experiences so far so early in my life and um I was trying to be great at everything. Trying to, I was thinking I could put 100% in so many different areas, and it's just impossible. I, I, was, and it, I was thinking, oh, I can do that, or I would accept so many different commitments because I'm, I, I have so much belief in myself, and it's great to have a belief and confidence in yourself and think you can get things done, but your time is limited, and your energy is limited if you have enough time. And so I had to learn to say no. Even if it's something that I know that I'm capable of doing, I have to say, uh, what are my priorities? What do I have to get done at 100% quality? Well, if I do this side thing over here, this ancillary thing, this is going to take away from my 100% in the area that I'm trying to master. And so that's the area that I'm really working on right now as a man is focusing solely on what I'm trying to master. And everything else has to fall in line behind that. Not to say that I'm not capable of doing these other things, but if I really want to master this, I have to put boundaries around this thing that I'm going after. And that just teaches you to, to be able to master anything. It, it, it teaches, so while focusing on learning to master one thing, it, it put, you're putting boundaries around your life so that you can actually, okay, once I'm done mastering this, now it's time to master this thing over here, Compartment, compartmentalizing it again. And that's uh, something I've really struggled with and something that I'm trying to master in mastering uh, my priorities. Well, and that goes back to the example we used of
0: if we were going to hunt a saber-toothed tiger, if you agreed to both distract a tiger and throw the spear, well, you're going to do a crappy job at both of those. Right. And we forget sometimes we really do need to compartmentalize our lives and and give it priority. And certain tasks are more important throughout the day than others. And not just certain tasks, but certain people. So, I mean, I have, people make fun of me for this, but I have zero issue cutting people out of my life. If you're not bringing something to the table, I don't need you around me. And that's not personal. That's just, I look at it as business. I've got so, I've only got so much energy. And one of the compliments my friends give me is that I'm very good at investing into relationships. Um, And staying on top of relationships and following up and calling people and asking how they're doing. Well, the only way you can do that is if if you prioritize who's important to you and What relationships are important to you and what tasks are important to you and and everything along those lines? So I think we're actually coming up on time here, but I've really enjoyed this discussion it's been really really good and I'm definitely going to listen to this a couple times I've got a couple pages worth of notes at this point of things that I've just been writing down as you've been talking and I'm sure we'll we'll have you back on the podcast sooner than later because I don't know how anybody could listen to this and think oh I didn't get anything out of it but is there any final words that you would like to give the listeners? Is there uh, – this is a- actually also a time for a shameless pitch at <laughs> self-promotion. If you've got anything uh, that you're promoting or any races you want people to be aware of or, or whatever it may be, um, your accounting business, it doesn't matter. Uh, give, a, give a final outro if you would like.
1: So uh, Yeah, I definitely really enjoyed it too. We'll definitely have to do part two and part three and maybe a reoccurring series because it was really cool just – discussing some of the things that we experience as men. Um, So the next few things I have coming up, I have, uh, like I said, a big race next Saturday, the Adidas Boston boost games, I believe is what it's called. And that's going to be held on the MIT campus in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So I'm excited about that. Getting an opportunity to express my fitness on the track. Um, so that's, that's number one on my, on my heart right now. And, uh, like you said, I got my business going, but that's kinda kinda on the back burner right now why why I master the track. Um let me see, is there anything else that I'd like to plug or anything? And how can
0: people follow your team on Facebook or oh, yeah. or social media, things like that? Because I know you said you guys have sponsors that that you regularly promote that work with you guys directly. So if, if anybody's interested in in knowing about how to get in contact with any of those folks
1: okay well yeah you can you can follow me directly at jc gilreath at uh right on instagram um my facebook is my name james gilreath uh, our our running club is team green running and we have a uh, social media instagram of at green running and uh we also have a facebook page team green running and we have a website team green com, which also has all that information and that, i mean i i've, I've Invested a lot of my my time and energy into that club. And my coach definitely has, a team manager definitely has as well. So I'm just a, a piece of that. Um, I'm really loving it, enjoying the working with the kids. So we we have a lot of great things going on. So if you want to make a, a donation there, if you just want to find out more about our club and just follow our progress, it's all available to you on teamgreenrunning.com. And
0: I'll make sure to put all that information the show notes as well so the Instagram and all that good stuff so people can just click on iTunes or Anchor or wherever you're listening to this. Um, I'm also thinking about putting, putting the audio up on YouTube. I'll see how that works out if I can get a quality uh, audio put up there because I know YouTube likes to compress things from time to time. So outside of that, I, like I said, I really enjoyed the conversation. I think people are going to get a lot out of this uh, as I mentioned in the introductory podcast, thank you for your patience with the hiccups as we work through uh, really figuring out how to run a podcast. And again, if you've got any complaints, constructive criticism, compliments, whatever it may be, CIP at gmail.com. Again, that's CIP at gmail.com. Uh, I hope you guys have a, a good rest of your week. James, again, thanks for coming on here, and we'll talk to you guys soon.